you're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Welcome back, Rockstars. This is a really dynamic episode. Today, I'm talking with powerhouse chef, television personality, industry leader, and innovator. I could only be talking about Chef David Burke. The chef has cooked in countless countries around the globe. He was mentored by some of the highest talent, most highly acclaimed chefs on the planet, and he's opened numerous restaurants in major cities. The chef continues to push the envelope of cooking styles, leadership, industry trends, and best practices. Today, I was super excited to talk about apprenticeship versus formal education, what it's like to open these concepts in cities and maintain consistency and high standards, marketing, food critics, menus and profits, and so much more. It's a super, super great episode, so stay tuned. I'm also really excited that this episode is brought to you by Cabbage. Now, in this challenging business of running restaurants, we make investments that grow our opportunities, our sales, and our ultimate profits. If we want to really succeed, there are thousands of details and countless reasons we need the money, and frequently. If you're running flat out 365-7, you need the money now and you need an answer fast. You really don't have time to put together financial statements and wait weeks for a lending decision. It's about acting fast and executing before those opportunities are lost. Now, Cabbage gives small businesses just like yours access to a line of credit of up to $250,000. You apply online and you get an immediate decision. Cabbage is a line of credit, so you can the exact amount you need, you never have to reapply for more money, and you only pay for what you use. Cabbage has helped more than 130,000 small businesses and restaurants just like yours with over $4 billion in funding. Cabbage is A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau and was rated a top 100 company by Forbes magazine twice in a row, so it's worth checking out. If you need quick cash, go to cabbage.com, and that's with a K, not a C, cabbage.com slash restaurant rockstars. And just for listening to this podcast, you can get a $50 gift card when you qualify. Again, it's cabbagewithak.com slash restaurant rockstars. Check it out today, qualify, and get money fast. Line of credit is subject to credit approval. See terms and conditions. All Cabbage business loans are issued by Celtic Bank, a Utah chartered industrial bank, member FDIC. Now, on to the episode with Chef David Burke. Welcome back, everyone, to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, engaging topics that help restaurants build their brands, rock their profits, and deliver amazing guest service experiences. I'm very excited today. I have an internationally acclaimed chef, a consultant, an author, and a television personality. Welcome, Chef David Burke. How are you today, sir? I'm very good. How are you? Awesome. Let's begin, Chef. I'm really interested, and I'm sure the audience is as well. What were your earliest influences, and did you always know that you wanted to cook professionally? Um, you know, as a, as a teenage boy, I was uh, working in restaurants, uh, you know, doing dishes, and uh, and chopping vegetables and uh, I guess at the time I was 16 or so I decided to get serious about a career so yeah it's basically all I've ever done 
Now, after that, you went to the Culinary Institute of America, obviously very prestigious school. You also went to an acclaimed cooking school in France. And by age 26, you had garnered three stars at the River Cafe. So you had a lot of success early on. What would you say this early success means to you, and where did it lead you next? Well, I, I think that, uh, you, you know, I had some determination early on to uh, be a great chef. And I worked for really good places. I went to the right school. And then, I, you know, I worked for the under the right people, never chasing money, but chasing the education. And then, you know, again, a little bit of luck, hard work, right place, right time, working at the right uh, being able to afford to work in New York City as well, or growing up near New York City, having access to it had a lot to do with some of those things. But in general, it was uh, a lot, lots of hard work, determination, and, you know, a desire to take chances. Now, the business side of things is equally as important as the culinary talent that you developed. Did you? Would you say that you learned business skills so that you could actually open and run your own restaurants at CIA? Did that come later? Did you learn that sort of in different uh, chef positions you had. Tell me about that. Well, I don't think you learn how to run a business until you're in a business. I mean, you can study business and you can, uh, the same as cooking, same as surgery or flying a plane. I mean, you don't learn that stuff from going to school. You know, you learn on the job. Um, so I think I learned how to cook first, and I was very good at cooking. And just by being in a restaurant and starting to write menus, you learn about the cost of ingredients and costing out items. But I think that running of a business comes came much later on when I became a partner in a business in the in the uh, mid '90s, uh, and I started to sit in on executive board meetings and we. Analyzing and scrubbing numbers is when you start to realize, you know, how to run a business. Now, I had four different concepts of my own that I've since sold, and I started these businesses from scratch with no experience, and I had lots of experiences with different chefs. Some were classically trained, such as yourself. Some were apprenticed on the job, and they kind of learned, you know, starting off in the dish room and working their way up and, and getting all those skills. Do you see that CIA was a huge benefit in your career? Would you have risen to the same, you know, heights that you did without the formal classical education? Uh, tell me about that. Uh, I think for me, school was very important because it made me take the profession very seriously. Uh, it showed me that there was, a, it taught me that there was a serious profession out there. There was discipline. There was uh, great resources at that time. That was 1980. Um, but at this day and age, and I have one son who was who went to uh, Johnson and Wales uh, for rest, hotel motel restaurant management. Um, but I I think that what's what with the amount of talent that's out in the field for someone that really wants to just be a chef and not go into the culinary schools or the colleges for all the other things that they offer, the great things that they offer. I don't think that uh, school is necessary. I think. If you can work for the right chefs at the right pay, and you can afford to work for the lower pay under the right chefs. You can get just a, you can get a uh, you can get an education and learn how to make money and not be strapped with any debt. Now, I never thought I would say this in the past because I believe in education. I still believe in education, but I also don't think that it's fair for someone to have to try to make fourteen, fifteen dollars an hour working off of fifty thousand dollars debt. 
unfortunately, the reality in some cases today, uh, no matter what your profession. Would you say you had many early mentors, and what role did they play in your career? Yes, I had a, I had some mentors. I, had, I always had mentors. My father was one of them, even though I didn't know it <laughs> at the time. <laughs> just, just thought he was a jerk when I was in high school, but he actually was a mentor. But I think that's the case with a lot of parents when you're a uh, teenager. But uh, I had very good chefs and owners of restaurants before I went to the CIA that I worked for that encouraged me to go to school. I also had people that worked that I worked for who taught me a lot that told me not to go to school, but I didn't listen. I went to school. I'm happy I did. Uh, and when I got out of school, I, I had worked with Waldy Maloof, uh, who was uh, classically trained, went to the CIA 10 years earlier than I, worked at La Copas, classic French food, taught guys like Charlie Palmer, Frank Crispo, amongst others, and Todd English. He was my, I worked side by side with him for three years before I came to New York, worked for Daniel Balloud, and then eventually with uh, Charles, Charlie Palmer, uh, before I took over as a chef. So I had three or four really great chef mentors. Now, besides um, the classical training in France that you had and working under French chefs, which were clearly an, intra, you know, an influence on your career and on your cooking skills, how did you branch out into other areas of culinary talent and cuisines? Because obviously you've got a pretty good um, you know, mixed repertoire that you've now excelled at besides the French. French was an influence, but you've clearly branched out to all different styles of cooking. French was, well, the foundation of uh, classic cooking and the French influence on finesse and respect of ingredients uh, and learning the basics and, and uh, uh, certainly is very helpful for anybody that wants to be creative. Uh, I happened to land at the River Cafe, which was a uh, was in the forefront of what of, the, of what is now called modern American cuisine. So we had a playground. We had an opportunity. We could charge a lot of money. Labor was cheap. We had our own laboratory there to experiment. We had lots of tourism from Japan at the time in the 80s. So money was no object. And we also had an opportunity to, you know, to create. The owner was Buzzy O'Keefe. He still is the owner. He, he, he let the chefs do basically within certain guidelines experiment and, and run the ship. <laughs> run the ship. No pun intended. It was a, a barge under the Brooklyn Bridge. So that became for seven years of my life a, a an opportunity to experiment on a daily basis with 30 cooks. So we built smokehouses. We, you know, we, did, we did stuff there in the late 80s that is still relevant today and still would if we put a menu in front of you today that we wrote back then, it would still hold up against a modern menu today. So we were well ahead of our time. It sounds like an amazing experience because it came from yeah. having understanding the classic cuisine, but not being afraid to fail. And fear is a is a is a, you know when you have when you're not afraid of failure as a creative chef, it's very helpful. You know because at the end of the day, it's a dish of food. You know, it's not a year's supply of wine. It's not a year. You know what I mean? You, you're trying, and you got to put. You know, like you got to put your name on it, and you got to stay the course. You know, but once you understand the basics and the foundation of classic stuff, you can build upon that without the foundation of the understanding of the whys and the why nots and the geography and the history of dishes. It's harder to be creative successfully. Mm -hmm. 
I've always called this business one of a thousand details, Chef. And even though you get 990 of those details correct, it's the 10 you miss that the customer or the guest always sees. With that said, you've opened lots of different concepts. Simultaneously, you're running numerous restaurants. How does one maintain consistency and quality? How can you be in 10 places at once? You, you've got to maintain those high standards. What's the key to that? Well, the key is the training people correctly, and hopefully they stay with you. You know, it's it's teamwork. I mean, if I had to hire a new crew from scratch every time, it'd be very difficult to uh, to teach them everything. You know, there's a times change. You know, people don't want to work seventy hours a week. They also, uh, you know, are not as driven as in the past to succeed. When I was younger, you know, I wanted to be the quarterback of the kitchen. That was the goal. I wanted to run a great kitchen, and I wanted to be—I wanted to wear a chef coat proudly, a white, clean chef coat with a white hat, you know. And now it—you know—there's people that still want to do that, but now there's people that want to be famous. And the goal to be famous and be good at your craft because you're good at your craft is one thing. To be famous because you want to be famous and admired, it takes a lot of work. So you got to be willing to put that work in. It's still a good goal, but you're not going to get there without putting in the long hours and the days and, and owning your craft. So I think there's there's no direct, quick, expedient line to being respected as a chef. You need to earn it. We talked about your goal being the quarterback of the kitchen. We talked about some of your early mentors, chef. How would you say, or if those mentors influenced your management style, how did you develop your own, and what's it like to work for you today? Well, you know, it's very it's a great question because none of them influenced my management style until 10 or 15 years later because I couldn't see through the trees. <laughs> you know, I was a little more intense, a little more angry, a little more uh, short-tempered than any of them. Now, Danielle, at his point, was also a little short-tempered, but uh, Wally and Charlie were very understanding of mistakes and, uh, and had more patience and, I guess, more gentle to work with than I was at the time. I find myself backtracking and looking at how they did it now when I get a little older and I think that it works better that way. How would you say you bring cohesiveness between the back of house and front of house staff? Well, I think you start to bring cohesiveness between the back and the front when you become an owner. You know, when, you be, when you're the chef only, you tend to see things from the chef side of the plate. And when you're in front of house, you can see things in front of house. When you become an owner, you become the referee between those two, and you start to understand that uh, you gotta you gotta thread the needle so everybody works well together. So there's there's there is cohesiveness. But when if you're back if you're in the back of the house with your head down 60, 70 hours a week pumping it out, there's a little animosity to some of the front of the house, at least in the old days. So I think it's that's changed quite a bit over the last two or three decades. And there's a, there's a mutual respect from the front and back. And if there's not, the ownership has to bring that to the forefront. And the guest's experience, of course, always comes first. And sometimes a server can be a little frantic when she approaches the line with a meal that wasn't cooked properly to order, if there was some situation that needs to be fixed. And, you know, you're under this pressure cooker situation. You're putting out every meal as perfectly as you can. It's hot back there. Tensions are high. People have worked double shifts. How do you, what is the balance between, you know, that approach and how do we fix and make it right for the guest without any delay and conflict? Well, you paint a picture. What we developed years ago 
because a waiter would bring something back and give us the whole the news and the weather about why the customer is wrong and this and that. So we have something called a refire slip. You, you fill out the slip, table number, what's wrong with the dish, how you would like it. You're not allowed to speak. You hand it to us because they break down your momentum. Everybody takes it as an insult or, you, you, you know, that you didn't do something right. And, you know, it's, it's all about the, the approach or how you hand it back. You, so now all you do is hand us a slip with the plate and say refire, and we read it and we and we go. There's no well, this lady's a bitch. Or this guy's what we're talking about. You know, blah blah blah. So you know it keeps the noise down, doesn't distract anybody, and we get the job done. Customer comes first. It's a mistake. We know they're going to happen. Let's just let's get it in and get it out. I think everyone in the audience can appreciate that answer and apply that today. That's a really simple fix that totally reduces the tension and the stress and makes the show go on. Excellent. Now, I, I had one, one time. Go ahead. The reason I up with this, years ago, I had a waiter who would come in whenever he had a refire and he'd give me the narrative of, you know, the description of this person and berate the person and say, you know, the old man on table 45 doesn't know what a medium rare is, da 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 this, uh, and I was, and I said to him, I said, table 45? I said, that's my father. <laughs> of course it wasn't, but you should the expression on a waiter's face is priceless, so we, now on, we don't talk about the customer. Let's talk about starting a new concept and you pick a city and it has to be mated to a key location or a neighborhood. How much market research would you say goes into a new concept? How do you select a city, a location, you know, mated with the cuisine, the menu and all those things combined? Well, that's a good question. Um, for example, we're going to be opening a restaurant in St. Louis. The, the location was picked for us. Um, they approached us to do a place in the, near the theater area in St. Louis. It's not the most, uh, not the best, but it's an up and coming area. So what we do is we do a little market research. We look at the best top ten restaurants, uh, and or not even the top ten, more top ten best in quality, top ten best in popularity. Go check out their menus, look at pricing. Maybe there's a decide to you know we need now we know we got to try to do something with a gooey butter cake which is a specialty of st louis they have toasted ravioli they like barbecue they also like great service and and vegetarian style food as of lately so we start to toss all this up together in a salad bowl of ideas as well as use our signature dishes that we know people love and the reason we were invited to go operate that hotel and we put together uh, what we think is a menu priced well value driven wow factors um, and uh, and what we can put together that people may like um, and that's what we're in the process of doing for St. Louis right now. Chicago, on the other hand, we opened a steakhouse, and because there were so many great steakhouses at the time, our focus was to create the best steak. Now, in order to create the best steak, we went out and we bought a thoroughbred bull. We patented, I had a patent on dry aging, so we dry aged on premise, which a lot of people weren't doing. And we created the best you know, Caesar salad at the table and, the, and ice creams at the table, and all of a sudden we won up. A lot of people were considered the best steakhouse for 10 years in Chicago. So, you know, it takes a lot of work. And also, you got to be clever. you got to be willing to take chances. That's innovation and resourcefulness. And that is the key to a great chef and a great owner as well. 
Let me ask you, Chef, you're thinking of opening this new place in St. Louis. So pre-opening and right at the time of opening, how would you describe your marketing besides obviously your reputation, which precedes you? And obviously there's a big splash, you know, Chef David Burke opening a new location here in St. Louis. What other marketing? Well, you've got social media now. The hotel has a big marketing platform. It's called On God Arts Hotel. So they have a great website. Uh, We have a great publicist. So we'll start to do some advanced marketing now, you know, like save the dates and, you know, just get wet people's appetite for when the opening date is. And then we'll start to we'll throw a couple parties when we start opening again. We'll eat out and we'll get some local chefs together, try and, uh, uh, you know, get them together for questions about, you know, just camaraderie stuff and and where to buy where to find the right staff. And then, you know, we'll probably do one or two big events that support local charities and uh, get the word out. And then we'll invite some friends and family in and do some testing. And, uh, of course, uh, we're doing that now where, you know, as people find out we're coming to St. Louis, they tend to come to my restaurant in New York or D.C. now and collect their cards and start making friends and put them in a file so that we know who to invite in when we start to when we start to. Uh, start to cook you know i was invited to the four seasons st louis as a, a guest chef a couple months ago and uh, for a fundraiser for a local culinary school and that was great and that's when we made the announcement so that that you know people were very very happily surprised what role would you say that major food and restaurant critics have played in your success um, you know, I think that there's been some really strong writers in my career and people that I've respected that have certainly uh, helped my career out. I've gotten a lot of good reviews through the years. And then you've got also uh, the food writing has changed a little bit as of late because there's, everybody seems to be a writer, you know, uh, the Yelpers and the, and the influencers and the social media and this and that. So. The real true uh, food writer who really is well-traveled and understands food, wine, culture, and history, uh, they're harder and harder to find. Um, but they're out there. And so you can always – I think the key to a food writer is trying to understand where they're coming from when they criticize you. And if there's something you can learn and take out of that article when you get a bad review, that can, they can fix without just being angry. Also understanding what they liked and didn't like, you know. One of the uh, the one of my complaints about food writing as of late is when someone writes about a dish without that doesn't clearly understand the focus of it or where it came from, without calling up and asking the chef what he was thinking. Someone should say, "What were you thinking with that combination? Or where did you pick up those? Uh, what, what, you know, why was it designed that way?" I think a courtesy call before a slam would be nice. I also think that if a restaurant is of great stature and high ranking and it's starting to slip. I don't think you need to just upside them the head and give them a bad review without a phone call to say, by the way, I know you're a four-star restaurant, loved you in the past, but the last two times I was there, I don't think it's worthy of its recognition. I'm coming back in six months because there's so much at risk economically. And I don't think you should review a restaurant that you're not promoting. I think restaurants should be reviewed because they're great. And if they're not great, you should skip some, you know, skip the bad review and give it to a young person that's got his life on the line and give him a good review. Are they always unannounced, Jeff? Or do you invite certain writers to come in and taste your food? Yeah, I, you do press releases and they know you're open. It doesn't mean they'll come in. You can't just flat out. You know, some writers that aren't critics you can invite in. 
and, and when you're in the business as long as I, you get to know some of them. So I have friendships through the years, but I'm not looking for a handout review. Um, and we certainly don't invite the uh, restaurants, uh, you know, that, you know, and, and I, I think like the, the big restaurant reviewers like New York Times, New York Magazine in New York City, you know, some they're, you know, they're now reviewing, you know, the other boroughs and different cities. So it's not as easy to just go out and get a review, you know, so, but, you know, it's a, a review is, I always think a review is very helpful, whether it's a one or two or three star. Because it lets people know you're in business. And if people like your brand and trust what you do, even if the restaurant isn't a three-star review, which is not always the best review, they'll know where you are. And it's informative. With a new concept, will you do more than one soft opening? And if you do, who is invited to those soft openings to get the staff up to speed? There's, there's two couple schools of thought. Some people do three or four nights of soft opening. I just opened a restaurant on the Jersey Shore where we did – we didn't do any soft opening. We opened with what we call previews because the restaurant was existing already. The staff was there. We went in, changed the menu and the concept, and we presented the dish to the staff one day, and then we gave 25% off for a week because we were in previews. So we gave people 25% off their entire check knowing we were going to make mistakes, but we were still ringing the register as opposed to doing a week or five days of friends and family, which will cost you $75,000. You know, those, those those crazy budget days are over. But then there's other people that will train for two, three weeks on a new opening. And, and it's built into the budget of the hotel or the restaurant. So different two schools of thought. I appreciate that answer. Let me ask you about your TV show experiences and if you enjoyed those, what you may have learned from them, uh, the good and the bad and the ugly. Um, I love being, I like the TV shows. I think they're good for your brand. I think they're good. The competitive ones are good for competition. They're good for camaraderie. I, I tend to do pretty good on them from personality standpoint and a competitive nature. Uh, I like judging them as well. Um, you know, I just can't be on that much. It's just, it's, you know, those are full-time jobs for, you know, you can, uh, but I think it's good exposure. Uh, most of them are pretty fairly run from my experience, you know, meaning the judging ones. And, uh, you know, of course it's show business to a certain degree, but the ones I've been part of as a judge and or competitor, I think they run pretty accurately. Uh, you know, they, you got to hustle. I mean, Top Chef Masters, I, I drove out of a plane and, uh, you know, I was competing with guys who I had trained. So I, I enjoyed it. I, I kind of like it. Some guys like it, some guys don't. But, I, it, you know, there's really not that much ugly in my, my experience with TV. Um, mostly good. Now, I don't know if it's good for everyone to aspire to be a TV chef, uh, but that's a different conversation. Let me ask you, what mistakes have you made along the way? It's not all wine and roses. This is one of the most challenging businesses that I know of. Um, what did you learn from these mistakes, and how did they play a factor in your career as well? Well, I think that uh, without mistakes, you don't progress. So there's always going to be – there's been some mistakes. There's been a lot of hard work. Um, but, you know, honestly, I wouldn't change anything. I had a really, really colorful – and you know, I've, I've been to 25 – I've cooked in 25 countries and probably been paid for 12 countries of doing it. So, so my hands and my – 
my palate have taken me around uh, pretty good, a pretty good run. I still love what I do. I still have the passion. But, yeah, I think, you know, we hit it pretty hard in the old days, you know, uh, late nights and, uh, and, and the rock and roll culture of what the, the modern American cooking was in the 80s and 90s. But, you know what, that's all, that's all, part, of, uh, that's all part of getting to a certain point. And uh, I'm happy that, you know, that everything's intact and, uh, you know, still having some fun. Chef, I believe that there are three key attributes to any successful restaurant concept. And I won't tell you what those are, but I'm curious what your three key attributes might be that makes a restaurant successful. Well, value is one of them. It's got to be, it's got to meet expectation. The restaurant has to, whatever it is, whether it's a $250 head or a $20 head restaurant, it has to meet the expectation. So you have to deliver on what the expectation was. Um, I think you need leadership and you need passion. I understand that you have won several awards throughout your career as well, and these are highly acclaimed awards. Uh, what have those meant to you? Do you want to mention any particular that means the most to you? Well, that's a good question. I, uh, well, you know, some of them came by surprise, uh, which were very, very. I, I adored them at the time. I still admire them. I'm proud to have them. Uh, and uh, and then some of them, you know, you work for. You, you know, you, you, you're, the ones that your peers or you're recognized by your peers together are, are great. And that's what an award is. So I, I'm happy to have them. I love them. I think the awards as of late, there's a lot of them. It's starting to become, you know, a little diluted when you have, when you know, if you're, for example, have to find a hundred nominees for an award every year and have to be spread out from different regions, it's not necessarily uh, because someone was great. It's because we had to fill the pages. So I, I worry about that to a certain degree where the awards are getting carried away because it's a business. But in general, it's always great to be recognized for your hard work. May I ask what your service philosophies are and what specific training that you might employ in your concepts to train the staff, not only on the hospitality and service side, but perhaps also on the salesmanship side, if that enters the equation? Well, I think that uh, it it would be different from 20 years ago. Uh, I would say that a waiter or a service person has to be comfortable with the product they're selling. They have to be behind the product they're selling. They also got to be comfortable with themselves in front of the guest. And if they make themselves believable and likable to a certain degree, I mean, everything else is easy. But when you sit down and you don't trust your waiter or don't like them or your waitress or wait person, it makes for a rocky start. So I think um, when, when the service person is transparent and truthful and honest and uh, – and matter of fact, I think it works out. Can I ask what role that profit plays in your menu design? <laughs> That's a great question. Because I'm right, I got a look at I got a menu right in front of me. So, <laughs> well, it, it plays a it it doesn't play a huge role in the in the writing of it. It depends on the budget. You know, it depends on what what your check average is. 
I can make money from almost anything I put on paper because I'm in New York City and I can charge the money that I want to. And I have a brand that can do it. It doesn't mean I want to do that all the time. So there's a technique and there's there's lost leaders on menus and there's a technique of writing a menu where, you know, you're not, you don't, if you write a menu thinking you're going to get a certain food cost percentage from every item, it's not necessarily what I do. Um, because I want certain, there's certain items I want people to order to balance out the menu so that one station doesn't get killed or that not everybody eats the same thing. And there's certain dishes I want people to eat because I know they'll come back if they have that. You know, so there's, there, every, I think every chef has, it's like songwriting, right? Everybody has their method or, or writing a book. You go sit in a room, you go to a quiet place, or you do it here, or you base it on experience. Some people write a menu and they're not flexible to change. And, you know, like I'll change a menu 20, 30 times before I put it into place. And then we plug in pricing. And then we go out and we beat up our purveyors on price. And, you know, we think about what we can get that's an economical cut and build that into a menu. I've always tended to be able to go after a unpopular cut of meat or fish and make it popular, which is the best way to make money. Swordfish chops, pork shanks, salmon bellies, things like that. You obviously work with local purveyors as well as, do you work with any broad line suppliers or is it all the local guy based on your um, you know, relationships? We work with both. We work with both depending on the concept. The broadline suppliers are very good at getting great pricing on non-perishable items that don't necessarily have to be fresh. What's next for you, Chef? Besides the St. Louis restaurant, I'm sure you've, it sounds to me like you've always got five new projects in the fire at any given time. What are you really excited about? We, we want to consult. We have a consulting company and helping out other restaurants and branding and licensing. But I think the future for me would be cooking schools, creating a cooking school apprenticeship program where people actually come out of the program knowing how to cook and being able to earn a top dollar and and being able to supply other chefs with quality line cooks. I don't want to make chefs. It's not a chef school. It's a line cook school. You come out of school, you know how to work the line. You know how to, you know, set up a station. You know how to stand up for six hours in a row and take orders and, and be organized and clean and, and, and be proud of what you put out and how to season and taste food and, uh, you know, timing, like learning how to play the drums. You have to practice. You just exude passion for this business and for culinary development and menu design and innovation and new products and consulting. I mean, you're in a lot of different areas at once and your time is stretched so thin. Would you see yourself, you know, teaching a class at a culinary school that you developed? Uh, I think so. I think at, at least as a large lecture and or teaching the teachers what the philosophy is behind uh, an attitude of, of getting things done in real time and moving on to the next piece of business. Um, but again, the teaching fundamentals is something I, I might not be, you know, uh, patient enough to do, but I certainly would like to add my, you know, my two cents. I've been around the world. I've cooked in great places. I've, I've seen so much change in the culinary world. You know, my, my start in the seventies to now what the changes have been. When I started cooking, being a chef wasn't even a profession and it wasn't a popular career choice for me at the time. So, you know, if, there's a new book just came out called Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll. And, 
and it's an interesting take on what he calls wanderers and misfits and and young Americans that wanted to change the landscape of American food, and and it's kind of you look at that back if you look if you look at the 70s and and then starting out you know what he nailed it with that with that phrase, you know it wasn't you know you didn't have white collar kids going into the restaurant business it was all blue collar and or immigrants and or people coming back from the Vietnam War. And there were people that could that dropped out of college that landed up as a waiter or cook. So, or, or, you know, and uh, interesting to see where it's where it's gone today. Let's go back in time forty years ago. What advice would you give your young self back then that you've now learned decades into the future for yourself? And then I'll ask you the same question for someone like yourself that aspires to be a chef. Well, I would, I would probably, I would give myself the advice of a, a little more balance in life in general, and, and not necessarily all your eggs into one basket. Like I tend not to have my all my hobbies range around around the restaurant business, and that's just me. But I think you know, I do travel a lot. I like collecting art and things like that. But I think you got to have a little bit more. I think when you take a step back from certain things and get a, a little bit more time off, which I tend not to take, but I, because I've been doing it so long, it doesn't affect me. I think you need for the younger chefs, you know, that are well driven. I think you got to step back every once in a while, take a couple of days off, breathe, and then come back in rested and strong, and understand that you know, you know, when the horse drops dead, they get a new horse. You know, the, the building will be standing when you come back and, uh, and, and get a balance, you know, take care of your family. Um, you know, the divorce rate and, and the, the, the dropout rate in this business is extremely high for, based on the amount of hours and the burnout. So, you know, you got, you got to juggle it the right way. Let me ask you, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you'd like to talk about? No, I think you've asked a lot of good questions. I appreciate that. Where can people follow you, Chef, on social media or other platforms? I'm at ChefDavidBurke.com, at ChefDavidBurke on Instagram and Twitter, and I think that's about it. Okay. Well, I certainly appreciate having you as a guest. Again, I love the passion. I love your experience. I love all the things we talked about. I think you're a great inspiration to current chefs that are just uh, you know, out of school, um, before they actually rise through the ranks, as well as seasoned professionals. This has been a great, great chat, and I certainly appreciate your time. My pleasure. Nice talking to you. You as well. Thanks for listening to, to the, the Restaurant, Restaurant Rockstars, Rockstars Podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. And while you're there, download a copy of the book, Rock Your Restaurant. It's a game changer. See you next time.